Don't answer. Don't answer. Those were the calls of workers from outside the Navy shipyard gate on July 31st, 1835 in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show, the Washington Navy shipyard strike of 1835 begins. The 1913 Patterson silk strike ends. And in 1970, the United Farm Workers signed their first union contract in California. Don't forget to like the show and share it. Thanks so much for listening. Here's the show. Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Eckel, journeyman wireman of IBW Local 124 here in Kansas City. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking about the Washington, D.C. Navy shipyard strike of 1835. Don't answer. Don't answer. Those were the calls of workers from outside the Navy shipyard gate on July 31st, 1835 in Washington, D.C. as the clerk read the morning roll. Of the 231 people employed at the shipyards, 175 would answer the call. An article put out by worker leaders calling an end to the action by negotiation was among the first published uses of the word strike to describe a labor dispute, and is considered the first strike by federal civilian employees. 1835 was a landmark year for American labor, as a coherent, multi-city, translocal movement developed calling for better wages, better working conditions, and the 10-hour day. Conditions in the shipyard had been intolerable for a while, and efforts to organize for improvement had been underway for some time in multiple cities, including D.C., Boston, Philadelphia, and NYC. In the decades leading up to 1835, a transformation had been occurring in the makeup of the shipyard workforce in D.C. For the first 30 years of the 1800s, the shipyard had been the largest employer of enslaved African Americans in the area. Their owners were both wealthy local civilians and Navy officers, and they in effect rented out their slaves and pocketed the wages. 1830 marked the first year that the D.C. Census indicates there were more free black persons than enslaved in the district. Black workers at the dock continued to be given the least desirable work, but the growing population of free black wage workers were viewed as in direct competition with their white counterparts. For the workers who were not enslaved, the early 1800s marked a constant state of anxiety regarding employment and wages. Wages fluctuated sometimes daily. For example, shipyard carpenters at WNY were paid $2.50 daily in 1808 and $1.64 daily in 1820. Hours were almost invariably long, but also highly variable, and employment could end at any time. Foreshocks of the building earthquake and labor relations in the D.C. shipyard in 1835 had been felt strongly on two previous occasions. First, when in 1827, workers briefly walked out over a wage dispute, and in 1830, workers stayed home for a week to show that, the per, that their per diem wage rate should have been granted sooner. The straw that broke the camel's back in 1835 was the imposition of a new regulation by the yard commandant forbidding yard workers to bring their lunches into the yard. This action was taken due to the report of Navy property going missing and the subsequent discovery of one man in possession of a lot of missing Navy property, and the workers felt that this regulation was not only a violation of their rights, but also an insult to their honor. Workers refused to answer the roll and began their strike. The yard commandant, Commodore Isaac Hull, had a long-standing horrible rapport with those under him, and this did not help matters at all. One of the few primary sources for information on the events in D.C. that summer is the diary of an African-American dock worker named Michael Shiner. He recorded events around D.C. for almost 60 years, first as a slave and later as a free man, providing historians invaluable material not just on the shipyard but also the War of 1812, the burning of the Capitol, and many other events. Mr. Shiner explains that white workers believed that Commodore Hull was intentionally importing black workers from Baltimore and other areas in order to break the strike. Hull appealed to Secretary of the Navy Dickerson 
expressing apprehension as to the safety of the black caulkers he had brought in from Baltimore and appealed for guidance on whether or not he should allow them to sleep inside the fort at night. Dickerson, in effect, ordered them thrown to the mob. Long-standing, intentionally sown racial division and tension over fierce competition for shipyard jobs exploded into a three-day rampage by white workers and other residents called the Snow Riot. What had been a labor strike morphed into a race riot. A white mob attacked the popular restaurant, the Epicurean Eating House, owned by freedman Beverly Snow. Shiner reports this was due to a rumor and that the mob broke his restaurant up root and branch, but that Mr. Snow was successfully able to escape the city with his life. Thus frustrated, the mob turned to attacking churches, businesses, and other establishment owned or frequented by free black people and made a threat to march on the shipyard in pursuit of Hull. The shipyard was subsequently fortified, but the one-sided racial violence continued for days until finally President Andrew Jackson ordered a company of U.S. Marines to restore order. The Washington, D.C. Navy shipyard strike of 1835 failed primarily for two reasons, one being the refusal of the Secretary of the Navy to negotiate, but the primary one being the racial division sown by those in positions of management and leadership in the city and the Navy, and the involvement of large groups of mechanics and laborers from the shipyard in the Snow Riot. Despite these setbacks in the fight for the 10-hour day, efforts continued translocally, and five years later, in 1840, all manual laborers employed by the government were granted the right to the 10-hour day. Make no mistake, that concession from above would never have come without the collective contributions of the individual people behind it forcing that progress. Have a great evening, everyone. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1913. Silk workers in Patterson, New Jersey, ended their unsuccessful six-month strike. By 1900, Patterson had won the nickname Silk City. Skilled weavers, ribbon weavers in particular, were proud of their craft. They were tenacious in fighting for the respect and decent wages they thought they deserved. Earlier that spring, these skilled ribbon weavers united all of the silk workers and went on strike. The strikers' main demand was a call for the eight-hour workday. The strikers were aided by members of the industrial workers of the world, most notably Big Bill Haywood and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. The strike also drew attention from intellectuals in Greenwich Village in New York. In fact, some time after the strike started, many of the Greenwich Villagers came to Patterson to observe the strike firsthand. They were impressed by the solidarity among the many nationalities of the silk workers and the courage of the strikers. The strike spread to other towns in New Jersey, as well as Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut. Meanwhile, by May, the Greenwich Villagers were working on what they called the Patterson Pageant. They hoped to bring public attention to the workers' struggles by staging a dramatic performance of the strike. On June 7th, Madison Square Garden was overflowing with 15,000 audience members and more filling the standing room only. Yet, while the Patterson pageant did bring money into the strike fund, this was not enough to help all of the workers on strike. Finally, the strikers returned to work. They were able to get a nine-hour workday at most job sites, but the elusive quest for the eight-hour day remained incomplete. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1970. That was the day the United Farm Workers, led by Cesar Chavez, signed their first union contract in California. It was a milestone victory for agricultural workers. Farm workers, often Mexican immigrants, had very strenuous working conditions. They worked long hours in the fields for extreme poverty wages. In the event that housing was provided, it was often unsanitary and of very poor quality. Filipino organizers sought to improve working conditions for agricultural workers. After the U.S. colonized the Philippines, many Filipinos were recruited to work on California farms. They began organizing as early as the 1930s, forming the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. The Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee reached prominence by the 1950s. At the same time, Mexican-American Cesar Chavez, along with Dolores Huerta, founded the National Farm Workers Association to organize the Mexican workers who were increasingly dominating the labor force in the fields. The Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee went on strike against the grape growers near Delano, California. Their goal was to get a raise of 20 cents per hour. When the owners refused to negotiate, the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee reached out to Chavez. The two groups merged to create the United Farm Workers. The United Farm Workers Union was able to get the support of many in the public through a boycott of California grapes. While the boycott lasted some five years, grape growers received considerably negative press and suffered financially. As a result, on July 29, 1970, growers agreed to a contract with the United Farm Workers, the first such agreement in farm labor history. So the next time you're enjoying those tasty grapes, think about the workers and their brave efforts to unionize farm workers. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Thanks this week to the Heartland Labor Forum, a radio that talks back to the boss. The share airs Thursdays at 6 p.m. and Fridays at 5 a.m. Central Time on KKFI 90.1 FM and Kansas City Community Radio. You'll also find them on all the major podcast platforms. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, that means you love labor history just as much as we do. Please help more folks find the show, like it on your podcast app, pass it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Thanks, as always, to Labor History in Two. That's a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.